We are in uh, this morning's session on the servant songs of Isaiah. What a fantastic topic. I'm so glad for the opportunity to uh, try and dabble in this a little bit just because the subject is so vast. But being a missionary in Southeast Asia for almost 20 years now, uh, it's so important to guide our hearts and our thinking even in missions, on theology rather than just on the need that's out there. In fact, I think most of missions today, as I see it, sadly, we're, we're in a bit of an oasis here at Grace Church where uh, we have such good teaching, but a lot of missions uh, today uh, has a lot of misguided purposes. And so I think that's even another important reason for us to look at the servant songs. But some of the weaknesses, if I could summarize uh, in missions, really looking at myself as, as a missionary doing uh, the work of the Lord overseas, is we tend to be oriented on a lot of things that, that aren't necessarily biblical. For instance, uh, a lot of missions is numbers-oriented. Um, Forty-five years ago, um, there was the concept of just looking at people groups and maps and checklists and, and statistics. I remember when I was first starting out, there was a movement even in my country called 82,000. So this was in the 90s, uh, talking about having 2,000 churches in our country by 82,000. Well, it didn't happen, so we've moved the goal now to 82,022. And the Lord is working, no doubt about it. But I think sometimes we tend to be uh, rather man-minded rather than Christ-minded in the way we think. But not only Uh, Do we tend to be numbers-oriented, but uh, a new trend, which I think is even affecting the church growth movement, is where missions tends to be needs-oriented. And um, I remember a wise missionary telling me many years ago that every need is not a calling, or you can really lose your purpose in terms of evangelism and missions. There was actually an Anglican uh, missionary pastor who even taught in a seminary in my country called Christopher Wright uh, that wrote a book called The Mission of God in 2006. And he, he, he kind of crystallizes uh, some of what this, this whole philosophy is in, in terms of there's an Old Testament mission that has to do with God's perspective on meeting the needs of even justice and, and social issues in the world. And then there's uh, a bit of a New Testament mission, which is the church's mission. And somehow these two missions do intersect, but they are different. And, and we need to be thinking about both these missions as we get out into uh, reaching the needs of the world. And, and what this has done is it's just led to a proliferation of social movements rather than gospel movements. And inevitably, and you know this to be true as well, especially in the modern church in America, that takes over and the gospel is lost. And so in, in many ways, what has happened on the mission field is happening now in the church in the United States today. And so it's, it's important for us to learn from this. Uh, there was a good book written by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert called What is the Mission of the Church? And if you want to read more about a good response to this, I think that book is, is, a, is a good response. But my main thesis Uh, This morning, as we meditate on the servant songs, is that missions must be 
kingdom-oriented and Christ-oriented. In fact, we have no mission without the mission of Christ. Our mission is nothing if we don't understand that we are just servants and under-rowers in a grand scheme and plan that the Father has ordained through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why even a landmark verse for missions, the Great Commission, right? Matthew chapter 28. One of my pet peeves is when people start the Great Commission with, Go, therefore. You, you can't start it with go therefore. There's a therefore which, which is asking you to look at the verse beforehand. And what's the context there? Matthew 28, 18. This is really the theme of, of all our missions. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's because Christ owns the nations through the Father's will and through his cross work that we have a mission. Otherwise, our mission is is pointless and useless. And this is really, in some ways, the crux of Isaiah's message, as Isaiah uh, brings to us even the person of Christ and his centrality to the gospel. You know, if, if anything, as a secondary purpose this morning, as I've been studying this over the last year and the last few weeks, I hope to excite in you a renewed interest in reading and studying Isaiah. You might say to me, what in the world would I want to read a prophet like that for? You know, it's hard enough for me to understand some of the New Testament. But, but let me tell you this, Isaiah has, has been known among scholars and, and even Old Testament uh, uh, students as the fifth gospel, because he's really, in many ways, the evangelist of the Old Testament. His name, Isaiah, means Yahweh saves. It's, it's just the reverse of, of Yeshua, in, in a sense. It's, this, it's the same uh, two words that have just been reversed to, to show even his parents' aspiration towards what his ministry should be. In, in the prophet Isaiah, which stands out even in terms of 66 chapters as just a landmark book, uh, there are approximately 128 prophecies concerning Christ. That's, that's 40% of all Old Testament messianic prophecies are contained in this prophetic book. It's, it's therefore the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. I, I used to think the Psalms were the most quoted, but Psalms come second. Isaiah actually is contained in, in allusions or even quotations in over 90% of the New Testament. So, so that just gives you a little bit of an overview of, of how saturated this prophet was in, in the gospel. Some of Scripture's greatest gospel invitations are found in Isaiah. You could even take this and make it into a tract, right? Just, just to remind you again, Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. I think some songs and hymns have been written on that theme. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy. Isaiah is calling us to be satisfied, not in the world, 
but in the gospel and ultimately in the Son, Jesus Christ. As you, as you look at the, the book of Isaiah, it's, it's, it's really interesting and easy to remember in some ways. 66 chapters, there are 66 books in the Bible. And so the whole Bible is represented in this prophet Isaiah. And you could even say, and even though this is a bit of a weak argument, but just for memory's sake, that chapters 1 through 39, the Old Testament, is the first part of Isaiah. And then chapters 40 through 66, the last 27 chapters, representing in, in some ways for memory's sake, the New Testament, is the second division of Isaiah. And, and if you will, uh, a lot has been written on Isaiah. It's, it's just wonderful to see the richness of, of commentaries on Isaiah. I would recommend, uh, for instance, if you want to get into it, well, start with the MacArthur Study Bible. And that's a, a wealth of treasure that we have right in our hands. But you can also read E.J. Young, and he's written a fantastic two-volume commentary. Uh, you can also read another commentary that I love, Gary Smith, uh, the New American Commentary, and, and get a little bit more information on this. But the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, I would summarize in this way, is the need for salvation. Uh, some have said it's just judgment, but I think it's more than that. It's not just condemnation, because there's, there's many glimpses of even the Messiah and salvation coming up in the first 39 chapters, but it's the need for salvation. And it's especially highlighted as Isaiah ministers in the midst of five kings who are supposed to be kings of the righteous kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Okay, this is the 8th century when Israel is split into Israel in the north, the 10 tribes in Judah in the south, which is supposed to be the righteous remnant. But even in the righteous remnant, there's just over and over a failure of leadership. And Isaiah is ministering in chapters 1 through 6 with Uzziah, Judah's 10th ruler, who rules for 42 years but again ends badly by offering incense on the altar, and he dies a leper. And so Isaiah begins to see even the failure of a 42-year-old reign, but he says, why did it end bad? You know, and, and, and you find that, that sense of, of mourning then being refreshed in Isaiah 6 by him being reminded that ultimately it's the Lord who is on his throne. But then he ministers under um, Ahaz's son, Jotham, who rules for 11 years and, and is, is a wicked king. And then he ministers um, un, under Uzziah's uh, uh, grandson, Ahaz, and then uh, goes through five kings, Hezekiah, and finally Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, who probably, tradition says, sawed Isaiah in half. And the book of Hebrews talks about that, right, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. The, the point is this that Isaiah in these first 39 chapters as he's ministering and prophesying is just seeing again and again a failure of the king who is supposed to be the righteous leader of Israel five times. Some of you have been through maybe one election or maybe two elections and you're already frustrated with the failure of leadership. Can you imagine going through it for five generations and just saying, Lord, where is the hope? And it's because of that that then Chapters 40 through 46 has to singularly remind us of the place of redemption, and that is Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, the final king, has to be Isaiah's subject as as he's reflected on the failure of, of earthly kings to rule. Such an important reminder for us even today, right? 
As we think, what, it, what is our hope in, in the midst of all the tragedy and the hopelessness of today? And it is this, that we are the people of Christ. And so, because of that, the comfort of the second part of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 66, is definitely highlighted and comes to bear in the servant songs where Jesus is even poetically sung off and praised as the one who is the source of all our salvation. There's four servant songs, and we're not going to be looking at all of them because you guys need to get to the food trucks today, I believe. But uh, we, we will be looking just at samplings of the first two, but just in a survey, and you can turn to Isaiah now. Uh, in fact, we're just going to be looking at Isaiah 42 onwards in your Bibles. But the first servant song that we'll look at briefly today is Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. And that speaks about the divine call of the servant. The divine call of the servant. The second servant song, if you flip over a few chapters, and we'll also dabble in that a little bit today, is Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. And that's the commitments or the purposes of the servant. As Jesus even speaks in the first person, prophetically, this is 700 years before Jesus is born. Jesus speaks in the first person about his mission. So Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, the commitments of the servant. The call of the servant, 42. The commitments of the servant, 49. And then Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11, which we don't have time to look at today, is the consecration or the faithfulness of the servant and how he never quits and he never gives up. And therefore, we can rest in him. And finally, Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 53, this orchestral crescendo of the final servant song, which, again, we can't get in today, but praise the Lord, Pastor John has already done it in a master class. If you go on uh, the Grace Church website or Grace to You, there's 10 sermons that he's done on this, and nobody can do better than that, I think, in terms of the gospel of God. And so Isaiah 52, uh, let me just say this briefly, though, while it talks a lot about the cross, the theme is actually the triumph for the conquest of the servant, not his defeat. The cross is not seen in the mind of God, in the mind of Christ, in the mind of Isaiah as defeat, because even the bracketing at the beginning of Isaiah 52, 13 is this, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted as a result of the cross. Not, not looked as weak and insignificant, but he will be worshipped. The end of Isaiah 53, uh, verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. That's speaking about the millennium. And it's saying the millennium comes to bear because of what Jesus did on Calvary 2,000 years ago. And so really the, the last song is about the victory of the servant that he's our conquering king through what he did in the cross. Well, turn back with me, if you will, to Isaiah 42, and we're going to be looking at the first servant song. Again, if you just think about the context in 40, Isaiah is saying, comfort, comfort my people. And then he begins to, to describe in, in great detail the comfort that comes because of the power of God and the ability of God. And then as we, we enter into chapter 41, Yahweh makes several claims. The Father in heaven makes several claims to direct world history. 
and he, he speaks about even allusions to a man who is going to bring back his nation, Israel, from Babylon, Cyrus the Great. He's not mentioned in 41. He's mentioned in chapter 45. But if you look at chapter 41, verse 2, look at this. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? And this is speaking about Cyrus. He delivers up nations before him. You look at verse 25 of chapter 41. It says this. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. He will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar. And so God the Father is saying that he is the one who's in charge of all the rulers, not just of Israel, but even of the world. Now, all the gods, the false gods and their people would have registered a claim that would be similar to this. And so it's important to offer some proof. So Isaiah offers a a test case in verse 21. And I think this is really the introduction to our first servant song. If you look at 21, present your case Bring forward your strong arguments. Verse 22, bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. And the Lord offers a challenge to all the false idols and says, would you predict also a future event and put it next to my predictions and let's see who is God. And in the course of all of this, the hollowness of the idols, of course, comes to bear. Verse 28 and 29 right before we get to our servant song, when I look, there is no one. You know, this is like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? After dancing around and singing songs, they just have no prophecies that can stand against the prophecies of the Lord Most High. There is no one. There is no counselor among them. Verse 29, and this is important. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. Now you're left with a feeling of hopelessness, right? God, the God of Israel, is going to rescue Israel. He's going to rescue Israel through Cyrus. And the nations and their idols have no counselors. Behold, there's no one that can lead them. And, and a question even arises, does, does God only have a plan for Israel? And is he just going to not do anything with any of the goyim? And I, I, and I imagine most of us here are goyim. Maybe there's a few Jewish people here, but that's a question that we would begin to ask. And that's answered through the first servant's song because the Lord speaks and he says, behold, all men are false. And look at 42 verse 1. But instead, in contrast, behold my servant. And, and you get this idea even initially that, that the servant is not just for Israel, but he's even for the hopeless Gentiles that don't have anyone to lead them. He is the one who can lead them. And there's even this mission and and gospel call in the introduction of the servant in this first song. Now, just quickly, there's been a lot of debate about who the servant is. And I've already kind of hinted at the fact that that I believe he's Jesus. But let me back up a little bit because there there are different allusions to the servant in Isaiah. He's, He's seen as David. This word servant is used for David in Isaiah 37. This word servant is used for Israel. In some of our servant songs, we'll even see a double illusion. But in Isaiah uh, 41, for instance, he's used for Israel. The servant is also, uh, some people like to see him as Cyrus himself. 
although the word Eved or servant isn't used for Cyrus, but he's called the anointed one in Isaiah 45. So some have made that connection. But, but I think, and, and here's a, a real lesson in hermeneutics. Words can mean different things. And words can refer to different things, but what determines their meaning is what? The immediate context, right? And so in the immediate context of the servant songs, I want to say to you with, with great joy and clarity that the servant can only mean the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would I say that? Just even initially, just even initially. He is the one, verse 1, who rules over the nations. That can't be Cyrus. That can't be David for sure. That can't be Israel. He is the one who rules with grace. That's definitely not any of those other people in verse 2 and verse 3. He's the one who sets up a kingdom that is over the earth and even over the distant coastlands, verse 4. And so even as we, we get into these songs, there's a, is a unique individual, namely our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is being presented as the hope of the nations. Let's, let's read quickly Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, as we meditate on it and, and look at what the Lord is saying here. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, it reads like this. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out, or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait expectantly for his law. This is the Father in heaven opening up the throne room of heaven and showing us, in a sense, the coronation or the exaltation of the second person of the Trinity as our Messiah, as our Redeemer. And he's putting him forth as he says, Behold, my servant, this is your hope. You can't hope in idols. You can't hope in Egypt. You can't hope in Babylon. But he is your hope. And as God calls this servant, we can see, in this passage, two roles that the Father has, has fit Jesus perfectly for sinners and for hopeless people. Jesus perfectly does the Father's work for us, his people, like no other leader before has done and no other leader after can do. He's the final mediator between God and men. And he is set forth by the Father as such. And the first role that that the father has fit Jesus towards us is is found in verse 1, and it is this. He rules the nations. The first role in which Jesus is fit perfectly for us is this. He rules the nations. And there's several reasons, in fact, three that the father gives us in verse 1 as to how and why Jesus rules the nations. First of all, because he is the servant. Notice I didn't say a servant but because he is the servant. He's a special servant. As the father says, behold, my servant, not Cyrus, not Israel, not not any of the other kings of Judah, but the ultimate servant, Messiah. And and the father, even as he's, 
he's speaking of this. He's speaking with, with great attention, uh, similar to, to what he does in the baptism and the transfiguration of Jesus. This is my son. Behold him. This was the way in which Simeon understood when he held baby Jesus, right? He says, my eyes have seen thy salvation. And he quotes Isaiah 42 verse 6. And so in the, in the highest and most perfect degree, this, this designation of, of servant belongs to Christ, who in the most perfect manner is able. What, what does the word servant mean? It's, it's translated slave even in the New Testament. The one who obeys, right? In, in, in the most perfect manner, Jesus carries out the decrees of God more than any other man. He's the final Adam. The first Adam failed and all men failed under him. Jesus is the, the last Adam through which not just cross work is done, but even the obedience that we don't have is accomplished. And that's his title. His title is the obedient one. And therefore, it's no surprise that, that Paul loves this title, right? Paul used it in Romans 5, 19, for just as through one man's disobedience. Who's that? Adam. The many were made sinners. So through the obedience of the one, not more than one, there's only one who can perfectly obey the Father, the many were made righteous. You know, I live again in a country in, in Southeast Asia where rules are optional, especially when you're driving on the road. And um, I find it really hard to, to drive when I'm here because there's just so many rules, you know? And, and I think that's just an indication of my depravity. And it, it, it comes to bear because of the way I've been raised. But that's all of us, isn't it? When it comes to the law of God, there's just no way we can even keep one of them. If we look at the heart of man, but Jesus can. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Isaiah is saying. And he did. That's why he's called the servant. Because he obeys. That's why in his words to John the Baptist, in, in Matthew chapter 3, he, he even tells John to allow him to be baptized. And what's really important that he says after that, he says, permit this to be so in order to fulfill all righteousness. And so Isaiah brings this out that Jesus' food when he lived on this earth was to do the will of the Father. So much so that when the disciples met him after he was sharing the gospel with that woman at the well, and they said, Jesus, we've got some food for you. He says, I'm fine. They said, did you get something to eat that we didn't know about? He said, my food, John 4.34, is to do the will of the Father. And, and this is the reason why he can be the head of all the nations. You get this? Adam, who was the, the failure in terms of exercising dominion of the earth, is, is supplanted and even supremely replaced by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the servant. And this is what Isaiah is bringing forth to bear for us in this title. Well, I better not get carried away. We've only looked at three words. But behold, my servant, whom I uphold. Not only is he the servant and he rules the nations, the servant par excellence, but he's also supreme. Whom I uphold is, is a strong word that, that refers to the father working through and supporting his servant and undergirding him in all things so that we cannot even get to the father unless we come to the son. God the Father, in a sense, is endorsing him 
as the only way in which we can know him. He goes on to say, my chosen one in whom I delight or in whom my soul delights. And one might, you know, sometimes choose someone without necessarily being satisfied or confident in, in them, but it's, it's so wonderful to see that the, the servant is not only the Lord's man for the job, but he's also the Lord's satisfaction. The father is satisfied in him. Two times these words are echoed, right? Matthew three seventeen, as Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or Matthew 17, verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice, the father again speaking out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, for in him, all the fullness, and this is the theme of Colossians, isn't it? That we need of, of divinity dwells in bodily form and you are complete in him. So, so he is the servant. He is the one who is put forth by the father to, to meet all our needs. And finally, he is the one who is sovereign. He's the one who is sovereign. I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This, this idea in the Old Testament of the anointing of the Spirit, uh, for, for us today, of course, we know that the Spirit has fallen on, on all. But in the Old Testament, it was a very special thing that, that came only upon who? Prophets, priests, and ultimately kings in order for them to administrate and rule over God's people. And so what happened in the waters of baptism is a very significant thing in that Jesus is being shown even prophetically here through Isaiah, as the one who is the final prophet, priest, and king who ends all those ministries and fulfills all those ministries because he is the anointed one. By the way, you know that's what Messiah means, right? Mashiach. It comes from the Hebrew mashach, which means to anoint. And so even his title is the anointed one, not a anointed one, but the anointed one in Daniel 9. And it's because of that that he will bring justice to the nations. Again, we, we need to be, be careful here. If, if you look at the context, especially of verse 2 of his grace, this is not talking about social justice. And, and today there's all kinds of cultural interpretations that, that tend to be pushed into these verses. But I would just say simply, this is talking about the universality of peace that Christ will bring ultimately in the millennium in the eternal state, but it begins through the preaching of the gospel even right now as people come under repentance and come under obedience to God. What happens? Well, what's happening even here at Grace Church in the midst of all this chaos? People are coming here and getting saved and they're coming to find peace in the midst of a world that has no peace. Why? Because they're coming under the one who brings justice to all the nations. And that's how Jesus began his ministry, right? He said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and this is the, <clears throat> the idea <clears throat> of just a proclamation of, of justice. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal of missions, isn't it? That's the goal of, of why we do missions. I would say one of the first motivations for missions that we learn from this is missions is motivated 
by the kingship of Jesus Christ over all the nations. When Paul walked into Athens and he saw the multitude of idols to unknown gods, what what happened to him? It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, his spirit was provoked. His spirit literally became angry because he said, these people need to know that there is a God, there is a ruler whose name is Christ and he's over them and they don't. And that's what provokes us to missions, isn't it? To, to, to say that Christ is king over all the nations. Thank you, brother. This has been the, the weeping prayer request of William Carey, who was the father of modern missions, as he prayed over the globe. And he said, the gospel has come to England, but Christ owns and needs to be the one who is proclaimed over all the nations. And ultimately, he went himself. And in some ways, I am here because of men like him. And, and that's what, what promotes and drives missions. It's not necessarily just us getting numbers or, or notches on, on converts in terms of people getting saved. You know, that, that sort of people-oriented thing isn't enough. It is the glory of Christ, the kingship of Christ that drives missions. Well, not only does Jesus rule the nations, but Jesus also restores the needy. And this is an interesting contrast in verses 2 through 4. If you've looked at the rulers of the world, Babylon, Egypt, how do they rule? If you look at the rulers today, how do they rule? They rule with oppression, don't they? But when you look at Christ, he rules in a way that is so different than any other ruler. He rules with grace. And that's what verses 2 through 4 speak of. Similar to John 3, 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And we see two qualities of of the grace of Jesus Christ in verses 2 through 4. The first is, is he has a powerful love. It says he will not cry out or raise his voice. This idea of crying out is Something that preachers do, right? Sometimes when they notice that people are sleeping in their, their sermons and they go, oh, you know, just scream so that they can wake people up. And it's not necessarily because of the word or because of Christ, but it's because of some sort of authoritarianism. And isn't it so interesting that Christ does not lead or teach in that way? What draws us to him is not authoritarianism, even though that belongs to him. Even though all lordship belongs to him. But what draws us towards him is his tenderness and his love. I mean, we're Calvinists, but we got to, we got, Calvin believed in this, you know. Uh, Luther believed in this. Luther even wrote, this means that the, the wounded conscience, those who are terrified at the sight of their sins, the weak in life and faith, are not cast away by Christ. As gospel preachers, we need, we need to learn this, don't we? That, that's why I said the mission of Christ needs to guide our mission. The preaching of Christ needs to guide our preaching. And so it says, he will not make his voice heard in the street. That's literally speaking about advertisement campaigns, right? I was talking to an evangelist that got banned in my country uh, for for preaching. And I said, how did that happen? He said, we put posters on all the... Uh, the street corners. And I said, you, you deserve what you got, you know, in, in terms of we, we just need to be so careful what we're promoting uh, sometimes. But Jesus didn't do that. People were drawn to him. He, he, 
he attracted people with, with his grace. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. This is the idea of reeds that are being broken in the wind that then can't be used for construction and dimly burning wicks of, of lamps with, with wicks in them that, that get to the, the last few stages of being ashes. And it's talking about people that are, in, in this analogy, that are so sick with sin that there's no hope for them. Those are the kinds of people that Jesus saves and wins. You know, even as you think about your gospel ministry, and I know all of us are involved in gospel ministry in some way, are you drawn towards the people that are winsome? Are you drawn to the people that are lost? And maybe this in some ways explains why sometimes we have limited fruit because we don't have the spirit of Christ. Jesus said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. In fact, when Matthew chapter 12 and verses 18 quotes Isaiah 42, the context is really interesting. And you don't have to turn there. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, it says that when the Pharisees went out and began to counsel against him as to how they might destroy him, Jesus, aware of the debate and the conflict that the Pharisees were seeking to have with him, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to make him known in order that what might be spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he will not cry out or raise his voice. Jesus purposely would not be drawn into arguments with the proud Pharisees so that he could minister to the dying and destitute sinners of Galilee. He intentionally moved away from people that were argumentative, and some of us guys even in seminary need to learn this, right? So that he could minister to the people that were needy. That's the spirit of Christ. That's the spirit that the Lord's bondservant is asked to have. Why? Because he's the Lord's bondservant, that he must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. And so you can see how his, his love is a, is a winsome love. It's a powerful love. Not only is it a, is it a winsome love, but it's a, it's a persevering love. It says at the end of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Again, this idea of peace through the law of God. And he will not be disheartened or crushed. This is interesting. Isaiah uses the same words that are used for sinful people. Bruised is crushed. Dimly burning is disheartened. And, and what he's saying is that there is a sense in as Jesus enters into ministry with broken people, their burdens become his burdens. And, and the, the bruised nature of the, of the reeds and the, 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 the idea of fainting that the wicks have, you know, even in terms of emotionally fainting sometimes, those were pressures that were on Christ. But he didn't succumb to them. He was a man with with great burdens, but he didn't get destroyed by them. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without failure, yet without sin, right? And that's why he's our leader. You know, I I love looking at this one passage in the Gospels, and I think all the Gospel writers, Matthew, 
Mark and Luke, especially the synoptics, were so affected by Jesus' interaction with a leper that they all write about it in different ways. But Luke writes about it very profoundly in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Again, speaking about the, the love of Christ, it's not a weak love. It's not just a sappy, romantic love. It's a powerful, redemptive love. This leper comes to Jesus in Luke 5, 12, when he was in one of the cities in Galilee. And it says he was a man who was covered with leprosy. And I, I see this in, in, in my mission field where sometimes they don't even have, you know, the extremities of their digits because they've been eaten by the disease. They've been eaten by rats and, and there's just sores and pustules all over. And the Levitical law in Leviticus 13 and 14 says such people need to be at a distance away from the cities. This man is breaking the law and rabbis definitely are not supposed to come close to them. And when he saw Jesus, this leper... He fell on his face and he pleaded with him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What humble faith, right? Now, what would I have done? I would have like said, disciples, take care of this man, right? Get him a meal at McDonald's or something, but I don't want to talk to him. But what the text says is this, he stretched out his hand and the Greek is, is very emphatic even to the fact that maybe he grasped him tightly and, and the blood and the sores that the leper had even came upon Jesus in some way. And he touched him. He didn't need to do that. You know why? Because Jesus' love is so strong that as he touches that leper, he's not made unclean by the leper, but he cleanses the leper. He's not affected at all by that leper, but he changes that man completely. And the man was immediately freed of all his leprosy. That's you and me, isn't it? In a spiritual sense. And the only reason we are here is because Christ loves the broken and bruised. But we forget that sometimes, right? In our own relationships, in our own interaction. It says, until he has established justice in the earth, he's going to continue to tenderly love and care for men. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. The gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 24, verse 14, will be preached in the whole world, and then the end will come. Christ will accomplish his redemptive purpose in, in winning every sinner and bringing them to him just like he's done you and me. And whether you want to be a part of it or not, Christ will do it. You know, the, the second motivation for missions is the redemptive love that Christ has for the nations, right? Henry Martin he arrived in Calcutta in April 1806 as an Anglican missionary in the East India Company. And, and he said, this Lord, help me to burn out for you. Be very careful when you pray prayers like that because he died seven years later. But he died seven years later, translating the Bible into about three languages, reaching a lot of India and even ultimately being buried in Persia because he was working with the Shah of Iran. He said this, the spirit of Christ, the love of Christ is the spirit of missions. That's what fueled him. Because he knew he was a beggar saved by grace that he wanted to give that to others. He said, the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. I love that phrase, right? The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. You want to become a, a good missionary? Get near to Christ. Get near to the, the love of Christ. And, and this is 
the, the, the message that we learned from the first servant song. Well, turn over just quickly to Isaiah 49, and we'll look at a few more principles before we close. Isaiah 49. We've looked at Isaiah 42, and we've seen two motivations so far. Missions is motivated by Jesus' rule over the nations. Missions is motivated by Christ's love for the nations. And now let's look at Isaiah 49 and verses 1 through 6. Let's read it. Let's read it even as we look at these verses. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord. And my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, this is God speaking to his son, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's unmistakable that Jesus Christ is being portrayed here as the one who is the salvation of the nations. And this is 700 years before Christ. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is the inspired word of God. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah prophesies about Cyrus, who's going to deliver the the southern kingdom 150 years before Cyrus is born. Because nobody lives for 150 years, right? But that's just the way in which the word of God works. And and as we we read these verses, we we just need to have a a sense of awe and worship. This second servant song is, is in a sense, even going beyond the first, because the first one is speaking about the, the father in heaven commissioning the son. This second one is the son himself speaking in the first person. Do you notice that? Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, the father, called me from the womb. And so we're moving from biography to autobiography. And, and this second servant song is even the one that Paul and Barnabas use in Acts chapter 13 as they're speaking in the synagogue in Antioch and the Jews are getting jealous and saying, Paul, why in the world are you, are you speaking to these Gentiles? And they quote this passage and they say, the Lord is the one who wants his son to bring justice unto the nations. And so as, as Jesus speaks in the second servant's song, we look at not only his commission, but we look at also his commitments or his purposes in ministry. And there are three things that he provides for us that he speaks of in this passage. And we'll look at them just briefly and then talk about their motivations to our mission. There are three provisions of Jesus in his ministry to us that we can run in and rest in. The first in verses 1 through 2 is he provides all wisdom. He provides all wisdom. 
And we can see this, uh, first of all, in his essence, in terms of who he is in verse 1. Listen to me. And, and, and here Jesus is equating himself with God the Father himself. Look at back up to Isaiah 41, verse 1, and I'll just read this verse where the Father speaks, Coastlands, listen to me in silence. Now, why can God do that? Because he is God and we are his creatures. But it should shock you when you see the servants speaking in this way, right? Because all the servants in the context of Isaiah up till this point have been earthly men and none of them could speak in this way. But Jesus, the servant, messianically, when he's, he's speaking in this passage, he says, listen to me in the same way that the Father does. In fact, this is the same command that's found in the Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Listen, O Israel. Why? Because I am your God. And so even as he, he comes before us, he, he's saying, why does he have all wisdom? It's because he is God. O islands, pay attention, you peoples from afar. And here he's speaking about the faraway islands, which definitely would not be the Jews. The Jews were landlubbers. They didn't like going in the oceans. And so this is speaking about the Gentiles. And the word peoples even is speaking about the faraway peoples in, in all of the nations. He is God who is to be listened to by all men in all tribes and all nations. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's echoing what Revelation 5 says, right? That a people from every tribe and tongue and nation is going to be listening to Christ and praising Christ. So in his essence... And I think you can see this clearly. And it it's, can't be identified with Israel. It can't be identified with any earthly servant. Jesus is God. But then look at the second part of this verse. And there's all kinds of prophetic punches and, and surprises here. He says, okay, this, this one who is God, now he says, the Lord called me from the womb. And you're going, wait a minute. If he's God who is to be obeyed, how can be he be in the womb? And, and you have the, the, the full prophetic, again, 700 years before any of the Gospels are written, description of the essence of Christ as what? Fully God and fully man. And even in his, in his humanity, look at it. It says, from the body of my mother, he named me. Now, maybe we can't get into too many uh, details here, but we could just say this. It's, it's a little unusual for him to be highlighting his mother and not his father. But if you know the Gospels, as we know the fullness of Christ, Isaiah may not even have known all these details, we know that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so there's, there's some allusion to that, that, that Jesus is the one who is born of a virgin, yet, and yet he's without sin. Why? Because he doesn't have the sin of Adam. And so he's God-man the mediator between God and men, the one who can hold his hand on the throne room of, of heaven and also put his hand on us and mediate for us. So he has the ability to minister to us because of who he is, his essence. But not only because of his essence, but also because of his effectiveness. And Isaiah goes on to say, what is the efficiency and sufficiency of Christ? Verse 2, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me like a select, uh, a select arrow, or you can even say a smoothened arrow. Both the descriptions of, 
a sharpened sword. That is a sword, you know, sometimes when I'm, I'm cooking and I, I like to do a little bit of cooking. I'm not a great cook. I find a blunt, blunt sword. Well, it's not a sword, but a knife in the kitchen. And it doesn't do the work well. And it's frustrating, isn't it? But here we're talking about Christ's effectiveness in, in the sense that he sharpened to the hilt. And whatever he touches, he cuts through it. He's effective. Not only is he a sharp sword, but he's a smoothened arrow. And that's the idea that all the, the bristles and the obstacles on that arrow, it's a streamlined arrow where when it's shot by a skilled marksman, it gets to the bullseye. Why? Because there is an efficiency to this arrow. Now, what's this talking about? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He has made me like a select arrow. I think it's talking about the word of Christ, isn't it? That's why I love when the Bible describes this word as the word of Christ, because it is in Christ that this word becomes efficacious, isn't it? Colossians 3.16, let the word concerning Christ dwell in you richly. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And it's at that moment that the word becomes effective, isn't it? When Christ is seen in his word. Remember, one of my pastor friends telling me how he got saved. He, he was a, a lost hippie into all kinds of philosophy. And his brother got saved before him. And so he went to his brother and he said, you know, I want to help you to get out of this weird religious system that you've gone into. Can you show me some of the things you've been reading so I can help you to see that it's all nonsense? And so his brother said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Here's the gospel of John. And so my friend went back to his house and he spent the whole next week because he knew he was a philosopher and he was intelligent. He thought he was reading the gospel of John and he got saved. <laughs> and he went back to his brother and he said, I'm just like you the next week. And, and that's even without a preacher. That's, that's the power of the word of Christ. Sometimes we think too much of ourselves as preachers, don't we? We think too much of ourselves as even evangelists, and we forget that the most important thing that we need to do is to not be ashamed of the gospel and get out of the way. I was talking to another br brother today about apologetics and trends in apologetics, and just how a famous apologist has, has fallen recently. And one of the things we were saying is, without speaking personally about that situation, is when you have an apologetic or evangelistic method that's based on the wisdom of man, it leads to pride. But when you have an apologetic that's based on how foolish you are and that the only wisdom that you have is the wisdom of Christ and the sword of the word, it keeps you holy. And that's just a simple starting point, isn't it? In missions. Missions is motivated not by our might and our power and our seminary education. All of those things can be way, 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 tertiary, secondary but the most important thing that missions is motivated by is the power of the word of Christ. And unless we realize that, there's going to be no real fruit. Jesus is the one who saves, right? His word is powerful. I love stories that speak about the power of God's word. You remember in John 18 verse 6? I don't even know what time it is. Is it lunch already? But in John 18 verse 6, Jesus is going to be arrested by a cohort of soldiers. How, ma how many soldiers in a cohort? Maybe about 480, 500. And our man Judas is with them, right? And I don't know why he doesn't recognize Jesus. And so Jesus comes to them and he says, who do you seek? And they said, we're seeking Jesus. 
And he said, the text in English says, I am he, but there's no I am he. There's just I am. It's, it's the name of God that Jesus speaks with the power of his word. And John 18 verse 6 says, it's, it's an interesting verse. When I get to heaven, I want to find out more details. I don't want to guess too much about this. But it says, when Jesus said, I am, the cohort of soldiers fell to the ground like they fainted. Guys that had fought wars at two Greek words, or maybe it was an Aramaic at that time, from Christ, they fell to the ground. This is the power of the sword of Christ, isn't it? That's why in Revelation chapter 1, who is he? He's, he's Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth. You know, Spurgeon said this. Spurgeon said, the word of God is a lion. You don't defend a lion. You don't say, you know, I got a lion behind me. I want to tell you all about him and his mane. No, you let the lion out of the cage and let it roar. Well, enough said, but I think that's, that's the point that, that Jesus is making here. That as we stand in his mission, let's not use our own wisdom, our own cleverness of speech, but let's preach Christ and him crucified. But then he goes on to say uh, this. Not only does he have all, all wisdom, but he also has and deserves all worship. Look at verses 3 and 4, and we'll go quickly through this. He says, he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will show my glory. And you're saying, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that the servant is not Israel? I know. This, this, this is one of those tricky, troublesome verses to, to interpret. But, but I would just say this. And, and there are some that would say that in this verse, uh, Jesus is speaking about the real Israel, and he's kind of stepped out of the way. But, but I would say that, that I think this is an allusion to the fact that Jesus typifies, and I want to say this carefully, all that Israel could not do in the context. Israel was called to be God's missionary nation in Exodus chapter 19, a kingdom of priests, but they failed in that regard. And so Jesus, in this context, as he's spoken to by the, by the Father, he's the one who fulfills what Israel could not do. And this is the only verse that I could find in Isaiah where you have this typology, so we need to be careful not to extend it to any other verses. Again, remember, context is king. But I think in this verse, it's talking about Jesus being the victor. What does the word Israel mean? It means God fights. And Israel wasn't able to do that for the Lord. What does Jesus do? He fights for the Lord, and he wins, and he fulfills the purpose ultimately in the cross. And the most important thing here, though, is because of that, it says this, and it's a phrase that is never used of any other individual in Isaiah or in the Old Testament, of an individual. Sometimes God can speak of his glory in creation. He can speak of his glory in a nation, but he never speaks of of it in this way. In you, singular, I will show my glory. And again, for the first time, we can see the Lord happily doing something that if it were for just a man would be blasphemy, happily doing something for his servant that should never be done for anyone except for God himself and saying he is to be given glory and honor and worship. All worship belongs to him. In Christ, the Father is glorified. And there's this Wonderful, happy relationship between the Father and Christ, isn't it? Even in John 17, verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. 
having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, that glory, though, is manifested in a paradox of humility in verse 4. Look at it. But I said, I have toiled in vain, and I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. This is interesting, isn't it? You would think that after God's saying he would manifest his glory in Christ, we would see Christ coming to the earth. And we don't see this in the Gospels either. And just winning millions of believers, right? Sometimes when you look at some of the manifestations of missions, it's with the numbers games, it seems like that's what missions should be all about. It should be just about floods of villages getting saved all over the place. But here's the question. Do we see that in Jesus' ministry? It's, it's a huge corrective, isn't it, to this obsession with numbers that we have today? And Isaiah, with great prophetic honesty, he says, and we can look at the Gospels and verify this, that a lot of Jesus' ministry was spent with a lot of toil and lack of fruit. That's what he says. I was speaking with another fellow pastor this week, and we had been in ministry many years together, and he was talking about the challenges he had, and then I shared with him some of the challenges uh, I had, and, and, and we were both saying, that's so encouraging. <laughs> it was a weird conversation, but it was a conversation that reminded us of the fact that as we toil towards the glory of Christ, the, a lot of times we won't see the fruit. God does. And if, if Jesus himself had that kind of ministry, how dare we think that we need to have bigger ministries than Christ, right? And be obsessed with, with the recognition of men when he didn't have it. Anyway, I'm, I'm preaching too much here, but he said, I, I've toiled in vain and I've spent my, spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And, and, and where's the refuge? Where's the, the encouragement? He says, my refuge and, and my justice and, and, and my hope uh, due to me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. So important for us to, to remember this. Missions is motivated by eternity and not by the present. Don't get discouraged, brothers and sisters, when you, you don't see a lot happening now because it's not really about that anyway, right? If you do see something happening now, like 3,000 getting saved in the book of Acts, all glory goes to God. But the important thing is just to be faithful, isn't it? Faithful to who? Not to men, but to the Father. That's what Jesus teaches us here. And in his faithfulness to the Father, he finds satisfaction. And therein should be our satisfaction. Missions is motivated by our eternal reward and not by what we see in the present. Amen? Well, one, one final thing. He not only does he have all wisdom, all worship, and it's an amazing worship that comes from even seeing his humiliation, but he has all rule in verses 5 and 6. He has all rule. Very quickly, in verse 5, Isaiah reminds us again of what Paul says, that the gospel must be preached first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And I think that's an important priority as we're studying the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that we need to realize. Why? Because it's God's priority. And, and catch this, it's not because the Jews are mighty or more important or special than anyone else, but it's because God has chosen the least of the world to shame the wise. And the only reason why Israel is still around and they have a future 
Romans 11, 26, all Israel one day will be saved is because of God's amazing sovereign mercy. Not because of who Israel is. Some of us get caught up with all of that. It's not because of who Israel is, but it's because of God's sovereign mercy in Christ. And so this emphasis is maintained that he rules over Israel. And that's why we believe in an actual millennium, right? This isn't it yet. Okay, in case you were thinking (laughs) that we've arrived, this isn't it yet. But there is going to be an earthly millennium that Christ is going to rule particularly with his people, Israel. And I think that's what verse 5 is talking about when it says to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. Now catch this. The idea is that Israel and Jacob would be brought back to their covenant Lord. And who does that? The servant. Read Revelation 7. 144,000 being saved from every tribe. God will do this. But I think as, as part of our mission, we need to be praying for the salvation of Israel. Right? Psalm 122, never forget that. And some of you may be involved in that. But then, catch this. Not only does he rule over all Israel, and this should just shock us, because I think it, it may have shocked even Isaiah as he was writing this, and, and the people as they were reading this. It says in verse 6, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant just to raise the tribes of Jacob and Israel. I will also make you not just over Israel in your rule, but over all the nations, over all the nations. It's clear that the the servant is not Israel because he saves Israel. But it's also clear that the servant also saves the whole world. And that's why we minister, right? God owns people from the distant coastlands. His salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. That's what drove missionaries to some of the most God-forsaken parts of the world. I was ministering in Kachin State in Myanmar some years ago and uh, was just impacted by the life of Ola Hansen. You should read uh, his biography sometime. He spent, I think it was about 40 years, single-handedly with his wife, translating the Bible into the Kachin language and literally died six months after he finished the translation. And gave his life to the Lord. And when he first went to Kachin State, it was filled. These people are still full of energy and, and, and just a wild people. And God has turned that around towards him. But at that time, they were tribals that were even headhunters. And the king in that area, the king in Kachin region, he told Ola when he first came in. He said he had a dog sitting under his throne. He said, there is more hope for a dog to believe in Jesus than for the Kachins to believe in Jesus. And Ola said, never mind, Jesus owns them. And he stayed there. And today there's a testimony of, I think, about 2,000 Baptist churches in that area. Not because of Ola, but because of Christ. That's what we are part of, isn't it? It's not our mission. Drive that thought away from your mind. It's the mission of Christ. May we decrease so that Christ may increase until he comes again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for just the encouragement we can get as weary saints seeking to live for you in a world that is hopeless and dying to bring the light of Christ, the hope of Christ, the kingship of Christ, the worship of Christ, the word of Christ into this world as a fresh cup of water for parched souls. You have done that for us, Lord, Help us to do that for others. And in that mission, Lord, help us to stop drawing attention to ourselves and thinking about our own efforts, 
but doing it as an act of worship unto you, because to you deserves all the glory and all the praise until you come. And we pray for that day. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In your precious name, amen.